0: Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 31. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure knot, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he entered, said to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, and where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there, ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which I poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the wine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said empathetically, I, will, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said the same.
1: Uh, picking up the reading again from chapter 14 and from verse 32 to verse 52. Um, and this is from verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, e- even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther... But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked.
2: We come now to our time in the Word, um, and of course we're continuing in Mark's Gospel. We'll be doing that through to Easter Easter Sunday. So, if you want to to follow the narrative, then you need to come out next Sunday morning, and again in the evening. Um, you'll be pleased to know that I'm continuing from where Willie left off this morning, and not doing a solo reenactment of Mark's drama from from last Sunday evening, acting as has never been my forty, I never made it beyond a farmyard animal in any school nativity. Our passage of text, of course, is Mark 14 from verses 1 through 52. Thank you to Benoît, Sam and Jonathan. There was a lot to be read there. Um, this is obviously a significant portion of text. I'm not going to attempt to, to cover it all, but rather just pick up on a couple of details before we spend time praying to, together. Um, on the subject of prayer let's just bow our heads one more Lord we pray as we come now to uh, think about your word Father that you would speak to us Lord that you would um, just challenge our minds that you would encourage our souls Lord that we would learn more of who you are as as we think about these words tonight Father words that Tell us of your goodness and of your grace. And Lord, we pray that we would act more like you as we come to understand your character. Be with us tonight. In your holy name. Amen. As I'm sure you know, we used to live in Malaysia. We were right down in the, the southern part of the main peninsula in a large city called Johar Baru. And Johar Baru and its uh, suburbs sat like a, a socket joint just above the island of Singapore. And the city was connected to Singapore by two Bridges, uh, both were, were short in distance, a mile or two at worst. Um, Alex can can testify to, to this. And the travel time to cross those two bridges could be very significant. If you, if you caught it lucky, you did the crossing in half an hour. If you attempted it at rush hour, sometimes it would be two to three hours or perhaps even worse. And the reason it was so lengthy was essentially due to the volume, 350,000 people daily did this crossing between Malaysia and Singapore right across two lines. But it was also... Tiresome and long because there were passport checks at both sides. Passport checks with stamps, visa forms to be filled out, customs, border checks. Customs was a big thing going on to the island of Singapore. The laws there were more stringent than Malaysia and many items controlled. Malaysia, on the other hand, when you went home was more relaxed. Bule, as they say. And sometimes in our lengthy queues, transiting essentially in no man's land between the two countries, Julie and I would sometimes theorise about how difficult it would be to smuggle X, Y or Z between the two nations Um, and what we would do to actually make that happen. And we came to the conclusion that it might be easier to smuggle in something obvious rather than trying to conceal something. We never did put our theory into practice, you'll be, be pleased to know. But I was, as I was preparing for tonight, the narrative that we read here in Mark takes me back to that hypothesis of missing the obvious. And in my Googling I came across uh, an illustration that's linked both to this and to my Malaysia experience. A customs officer observes a truck pulling up at the border suspicious he orders the driver out and searches the vehicle he pulls off the panels the bumpers the wheels to find something but nothing he finds not a single scrap of contraband nothing even remotely suspicious and therefore he waves the truck through the next week the same driver arrives again the official searches and again he finds nothing illicit Over the years, the official tries everything in his power to find out what's going on, from a full body scan, x-rays, sonar, anything he can think of. And each week, the same man drives up, but no mysterious cargo ever appears. And each time, reluctantly, the customs officer waves him on through. Finally, after many years, just as the officer is about to retire, the driver pulls up. And the officer says to him, I know you're a smuggler, don't bother denying it, but I can never figure out what you've been smuggling all these years. I'm retiring now and I promise I can do you no harm, please just tell me what you've been smuggling. Trucks, says the driver. (laughs) Similarly to the customs officer missing the obvious, we read in our first 11 verses of Mark 14 that Jesus' disciples had missed the obvious. Jesus and his disciples, we know, were, were still staying in Bethany, a town just two miles outside of Jerusalem. They're probably staying there for their safety, but also because the city was also very crowded with Passover pilgrims it is of course just two days before Passover as Willie highlighted this morning we read that in the first two verses Jesus and his disciples are being hosted by Simon the leper and in their presence we read is a lady we know that this lady is Mary we find that in John's gospel account who was potentially the daughter of Simon and in our narrative we read that whilst Jesus Was reclining at the table, this lady, Mary, came with an alabaster flask of ointment containing pure nard, and she breaks it, pouring its contents over Jesus' head in order to anoint him. Nard, we come to learn, is very expensive. It's an essential oil. It was used as a perfume during Jesus' time. And when I looked it up today, apparently it's only found in the Himalayas or in China. And if it was the same then as it is now, you get the sense as to why it would be quite so pricey. And she doesn't just pour over a diluted variant of nard or secrete a small volume, but rather she pours over on Jesus a whole jar, a whole alabaster jar of pure nard. And in this moment we come to learn that it wrong-foots every single one of the disciples. They all missed the obvious. The eleven were indignant at the waste. All that money invested in one jar could have been used to feed and clothe the poor, which of course was perfectly true. Jesus, however, though he fully recognised the claims of the poor, verse 7, saw a greater priority at that moment. Every king of Judah was anointed before coronation, And this was to be his anointing, not by a prophet, but by a woman. But it was more, for it was a symbolic preparation of his body for burial. And this woman knew that her king must die. She had understood the gospel. She had come to know that this man reclining at the table was her rescuing king. That the man before her wasn't just a man but was God incarnate. And she knew that the prophets of old had foretold that this rescuing king, when he dies, would be a king who would take the place for those who actually deserve to die. And also she knew that this king Would be the anointed king, for he would conquer the grave. Death could not hold him, and therefore she pours out the very best of what she has to anoint her king and to prepare his body for the death that was about to come to him. And the disciples miss this symbolism. They miss this anointing, they miss the preparation, they focus in on the temporal material relief from poverty rather than the permanent relief from spiritual poverty. And then we read that Judas, well he goes on one better. Not only does he miss the anointing and the preparation, he also misses the idea of charity and welfare. And he goes straight to figure out how to line his own pocket. He had earthly treasure on his mind rather than kingdom treasure. His focus was on the here and now rather than on heaven and eternity. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas It says, went at once to the chief priests to find out how much money he could make out of betraying Jesus before it was too late. Judas had no high or patriotic motive. Sheer love of money was his downfall as it has been for many a person. This is why Jesus warns so often against the love of money. If Judas could not understand the woman's actions then he wouldn't understand the cross either. Matthew 6 and 24, we cannot serve God and money at the same time. That's the application for us here, I think. That what is in front of us, be it works, a career, a relationship, money, power, stature, schooling, friendship, belonging, material needs, religious things. Well, sometimes they can obscure the obvious, can't they? They can cloud our judgement. They can interfere with our ability to see Jesus and the cross. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. These things, not necessarily even bad enough themselves, can distract and detract from our view of Jesus. Church is not our personal goal and indeed our great commission to know Jesus. And to tell the gospel and to teach others of the gospel. And if that goal and commission is not true of you and I tonight, then let us reacquaint ourselves with knowing the obvious. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again so that you and I can go free. Period. And he is calling for you and I to testify to that. He is calling for you and I to pour ourselves out like a fragrant offering, like a broken alabaster jar in service to that end. He is calling for you and I to serve. Mark's narrative then moves on from the house of Simon the leper out of Bethany to a house within Jerusalem. Passover dictates that an observer must observe Passover within the city limits. Hence the reason Jesus and his disciples move on. And when we get there we read very familiar words as Jesus lays out for his disciples and by default us the institution of the Last Supper. From verses 12 through 25. And it's in this section of text that we become to be warned of another human weakness. Not only do we have a weakness to miss the obvious, but now in this section of text, we have a weakness to betray. Verse 18. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Of course, in hearing this, the disciples are rather indignant. They had no idea who it was, but they had such self-confidence that they each refused to believe it could be he. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, is it I? Is it I? The picture I see here is not dissimilar from our own family inquisition in the Leith household as we try to figure out what Leith child did what. That turn up of face and bemusement. That question of do you really think it was me that could do such a thing? Am I really capable of doing what you've just suggested? Me, the child that always behaves. Of course it's never one more than the other or one worse than the other. Every leaf child has the same potential to do wrong. But it doesn't just stop at children, does it? It applies to us all. We have after all all done wrong we all have the potential to keep doing wrong we all sadly have the potential to do what Judas did and ultimately betray Jesus not necessarily to the point of death but we can betray him in other ways continuing to indulge in that thing that we know to be wrong failing to speak the truth of his lordship When we know we should. Failing to act out the way that Jesus would like us to act. Failing to love and be gracious and compassionate. Exchanging his ways for the ways of others. And ever if we needed a greater demonstration to decide to be loyal rather than disloyal. Then it would be hard to find a better example of that than what Jesus demonstrated to the disciples and would be betrayer. For he says, as he presents to them the bread and the wine. This is me. I am the bread. I am the cup. Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. There is no word for is in Aramaic. Therefore, when we read verses 22 through to 24, we should read them as this. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take this my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank off it. And he said to them, this, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, Of course, I'm not suggesting that Jesus' blood is in the wine that we take or his body indeed in the bread that we eat. But rather that our minds should be tuned to focus sharply on the one who gave himself for us. He wasn't giving Something of himself. He was giving all of himself. He is there at the time of Passover. A time when lambs are are sacrificed in remembrance of God's mercy and grace. And he's there as the very essence of grace and mercy. The sacrificial lamb. In that upper room, a literal sacrificial lamb. And that lamb was about to be given for you and me. A lamb that would be the ransom price. A lamb that would be the covenant sacrifice. A lamb that would be a sin offering. All of him for all of you and all of me. What could possibly, what could possibly trigger a greater call to loyalty than that? Our weakness to miss the obvious. Our weakness to betray. And now the third human weakness made plain for us in our text. Is the weakness to temptation. Jesus moved from Bethany to the upper room in Jerusalem. And now we follow the narrative to him being in the garden of Gethsemane. That's verses 32 through to 42. And in this section we read of Jesus praying to his father. Who he intimately calls Abba. He says Abba. Remove this cup from me, verse 36. In other words, he's asking his father, is there another way? We must never think that Calvary was easy. That this prayer just shows how hard it was. He knew that the cross meant a brutal and cruel death. Yet he is willing to accept it. He is willing to accept it should it be the father's will. Why? Why? Because it's the only way to permanently redeem people like us who would otherwise continually need to make atonement for our wrongdoing. And even in this moment of sheer spiritual strife of the Lord Jesus pouring out his heart to his father. We have his three closest disciples Peter, James and John falling asleep. Falling asleep repeatedly when they're asked to keep watch. Verse 34 he said to them. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. Remain here and watch. He comes back, verse 37. Are you asleep? Could you not just watch one hour? Please watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We follow it, verse 40, and again he came. And he finds them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And again in verse 41, And he came to them a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Three times Despite being warned. Three times despite being in the presence of their God and Saviour. Three times despite the spirit being willing but the flesh weak. I'm sure we can draw parallels with instances in our own lives. When we know something is contrary to the warning of scripture. When we know something is contrary to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. When we know ultimately that our own spirit is willing but our flesh is weak. When we indulge in that wrongdoing despite all three triggers we demonstrate our weakness to temptation. This is why we need Jesus. This is why he followed through with what we go on to read in verses 43 through to 52. This is why the father willed for his only one and begotten son to bear the cross. Because he knew that our temptation to turn the other way would be forever great. Even in Gethsemane, in his hour of need, could not the disciple yield from temptation? How much more then are we in need of his grace today? Jesus planned to be found by the temple police and those of the priests. He could have easily hidden out the night in darkness in the thronging crowds, yet his time had come. And God willed it such that there would be a man in the form of Judas who would be familiar with Jesus' movements and deliver him over to the Pharisees. Verse 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This was his time. And when his time arrives you will notice that those who were with him, the disciples, will succumb to human weakness yet again. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. This is what we have running through the whole of the passage tonight. We have human weakness. We have the weakness of missing the obvious. We have the weakness of betrayal. We have the weakness of temptation. And even at the end we have the weakness of standing by Christ. This is who we are. A people with unclear minds. A people given to pursuing other things. And a people... Ultimately on a trajectory that is counter to God's design. Yet all of that weakness is countered by someone strong in our passage. All of that weakness is countered by someone who is going to fulfill God's rescue plan. All of that weakness is countered by someone who is forever faithful. All of that weakness is countered by someone who never errs his course or falls into temptation. All of that weakness is countered by someone who will never flee you. All of that weakness is countered by Jesus. O gathered saints, do we know that someone tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the one who is the definition of charis. Merciful grace. The one who is strong and kind. The one who never folds or yields to temptation. The one who is there despite our willingness to walk away. Lord, we give thanks for your Son tonight, the one who instituted for us the supper in remembrance of what he did. Lord, we are thankful for him. Lord, be it our prayer that you would live in us and that we would turn to you and to Jesus. May we always know the obvious. In your precious Son's name. Amen.